0: No matter what you're trying to say, no matter what the look you're going for is, there should always be, no matter what it is, no matter whether it's rough, whether it's fine, whatever it is, it should always be refined.
1: What episode are we on? What historic, which historic uh, milestone are we achieving today? 127? What glorious glorious and significant number. Today
2: we're celebrating episode 124.
3: One plus two plus four is seven, which is an auspicious number. So, I mean, it's the name of Erica Badu and Andre 3000's child. So, you know, it's,
2: you know, we had to bring Will back for this one. <laughs> That's 124. Right.
1: This episode is going to be packed with meaning. There's going to be whole Reddit channels about this episode and like deconstructing and reading between the lines, you know, conspiracy theories and corporate lunch Easter eggs. That's right. Yeah. Many
3: listeners will be unpacking um, elements of this episode with their therapists or mental health counselors for years to come, just like we all do with our childhoods.
1: That's right. That's the level of impact. This
3: episode is your childhood, people.
1: <laughs> this is your trauma. Well, yeah. welcome back. Um,
3: Feels so good to be home, I have to
1: say. You want, do you have any like homecoming words, anything we should know? you want to share anything, what you've been up to? Or, uh... I just
3: woke up like James Brown in a cold sweat and was like, I got to go on corporate lunch immediately. <laughs> and here we are.
1: And today we'll be joined also by stylist and uh, GQ contributor George Cortina, which is pretty important, pretty significant, I would say, moment in Corporate Lunch history to introduce a new voice, a new partner, a new friend to, to us and to all.
3: And we have a lot of, um, there's a lot to talk to George about, including some of our, uh, the collaborations we've had over the last few years. We're going to be unpacking some rather epic collaborations, I think.
1: Some of uh, yours and mine, and all of our favorite GQ covers of the last what two years? True and change, yeah. I'm just gonna go ahead and say that he styled the Keanu Reeves cover, which is probably the greatest GQ cover of all time. The greatest magazine cover of all time.
2: Unlike you know, I've been to the to Noah's nursery where his child sleeps, and it's just the, the Keanu photos from that shoot just pasted all over the walls. <laughs> it's crazy. Also the. Child's bed is on
3: four legs that are just stacks of the GQ Keanu Reeves cover <laughs> issues.
1: And in fact, Noah's daughter sleeps like Keanu leaning back over that chair.
3: Little known fact about Noah's daughter is that her middle name is Keanu. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yep. It's true, it's true. And uh, also a guy who's been known to hang out at the Chateau Marmont, right? Which is, I think something we'll have to get into to- today. George's sort of residence is there. And uh, of course, Sam Hine did some pretty amazing chateau reporting. What early la- March last year, about a year ago?
2: No, it was in September of September of twenty
1: twenty. So less than a year ago.
2: Yeah, I, I did get to experience some of the George Cortina lifestyle at the Chateau Marmont, and let me just tell you, it is one of the most aspirational ways to live um, on on planet Earth. I think he's really he's really he's a guy who's really figured it out.
1: He has everything figured out. I think.
2: Eloise of the Chateau Marmont, George Cortina. Yeah, He might call in poolside at the Chateau, oiled up, wearing a Speedo,
1: um, <laughs> which is where he usually is. We need more skin on this, Bob. Uh, and do we, have a, do we have a cover reveal to discuss? Um, we
3: do. we perhaps, do.
1: Perhaps the latest Cortina, DQ collaboration, the April cover.
3: This is a very fine magazine cover, I must say. In black and white that's how we roll. When it, when it's time to roll that way, that's
1: how we roll. And also, one of the one of the finest opening spreads, I think, in GQ history. Does anyone want to say the name of the actor who's on the cover?
2: I'm I don't no. even want Stephen Yoon. There it is, Stephen Yoon on a horse. On the opening spread, not on a the horse. opening spread. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's some. Isn't there some conventional wisdom in magazine making about black and white covers? Absolutely. Do not do them. I mean, to take it back to our Keanu Reeves cover,
3: the yeah. um, traditional wisdom around, the, like magazine cover making 101 is color photograph with eye contact, no glasses. So the Keanu Reeves cover broke all conventions of magazine cover success, and yet became the greatest magazine cover of all time (laughs) according to (laughs) corporate lunch authority, Noah Johnson and magazine historian, and ultimate judge of magazine greatness, Noah at Noah V. Johnson.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the the breaking of the rules definitely has something to do with what makes it great. That's for sure. I mean, um, you got to know the rules to break them. And I think GQ and Will Welch damn well know the rules and have, have proven that. And then I think when you get, yeah, you know, you get Keanu, it's gotta be special. It's gotta be different such a maverick such a you know icon iconoclast
3: the key to breaking the rule any rules is to know why you're breaking them and and to have it be a conscious decision that is like some combination of both like totally instinctual and like irrevocably irrevocably backed up you know what i mean like i knew exactly what the rules were I knew exactly why we were breaking them and I both could feel while we were breaking them. And I could also tell you the feeling being more important than the telling, but both being in the mix is helpful when you're just going to like shit on convention.
2: And well, surely it's surely it's no coincidence that most of our rule breaking covers have George Cortine involved.
3: Yeah, <laughs> that is true. That is true. George is searching for a feeling, not searching to check off boxes on a pre-arranged conventional wisdom checklist. Mm -hmm. And it's like that feeling with George, it's like that feeling is above. It's like the most important thing in life. And for that, I honor and value him and love working from him and have learned a lot from working with him. I I can tell an anecdote about my first time working with George that doesn't really like... Merit a lot of response from him. In other words, I think it stands alone while we wait for him. One of my favorite photographers, Daniel Jackson. Um, we were talking to him about uh, a shoot with Bill Skarsgård, a fashion a fashion shoot with Bill Skarsgård. At the time, I was the creative director of GQ and had just been that for a couple months, and uh, so it was definitely like getting my bearings and. Uh, Dan suggested George as the stylist for the shoot. Um, there's other details that we can maybe get into later, but basically, um, it came into, uh, George came into GQ and we were doing the run through and this is our first time working together. Uh, we were doing the run through of the clothes that we had for the next day's shoot with Bill Skarsgård and George wanted to do all black clothes, um, and not in some dramatic way, like I've had a vision and it's gonna be all black, but just like the best thing for this guy with his features and based on the, the interesting stuff in the collections right now is to just like do this kind of severe black styling with a lot of, with a lot of tailoring and some other pieces, great. So come in, George is there, uh, John Teats, the GQ fashion editor, George's assistant. George has a few rails of clothes, but nothing crazy and then he edits it down to one rail and there are eight looks and he's like that's the shoot and i was like cool like what happens the day before shoot is you're like i think that's the shoot but we're gonna like try on all this stuff do a fitting see what works change a bunch of things maybe the talent has some feedback on what he likes and well no the only thing that that was brought to the studio was the eight predetermined looks, and if I remember correctly, we did eight looks and we shot those eight things, and that was it. It was done. I had just never seen that um, done before, where somebody knew that specifically what they wanted, and you know the um, it was also eye opening to me because our fashion director, Mobilaji Dawadu, um, another absolutely brilliant stylist at the top of his game. Mubalaji is like all feeling all, what is the talent responding to? What like, what changes the way the talent holds themselves? Like trying different things, like just really spontaneous. Um, And this was just like the stark polar opposite of that. And that already in that moment, uh, you know, as this first shoot was happening was like, how cool is this if we have like, um, working with this new guy who seems to be great, new to us, George, who seems to be great, who works in a like such a different way from, you know, the person who had been our partner in GQ style from the beginning, Mobalaji, and and to be able to go work with both of them. Like how exciting. And of course, George Bunt dumped a bucket of water on Bill Skarsgård that day, as one does. <laughs> what do you mean? Oh, well, you like go shirtless and then you dump get oh, him wet. Genius.
1: Yeah,
2: dumped the bu- bucket of water. The first time I was ever on set with George Cortina was for our September 2019 fall fashion model portfolio extravaganza where I think we shot 22 models in two days. And uh, we were at a studio, at an offsite studio and um, George and all the models were, um, were going outside for, for smoke breaks. And the, the staff of the studio went outside and kept yelling at him and being like, you can't smoke outside. There's signs everywhere, blah, blah, blah. So he just started smoking inside.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, that's funny. Hi, George. Hey, Will. Uh, You know Sam. Hi, Sam. Hey, George. Good to see you. Nice to see you, sir. Rachel Tashtian. Hi, Rachel. And the great Noah Johnson, the great George Cortina. Well,
0: lovely to meet you.
1: Nice to meet you, George. Thanks for calling in. Sure. Sorry about being
0: late, guys.
3: Quite all right. You inspired inspired a, a Future Manners episode, so thank you.
0: As usual,
3: I was like, George actually has really good manners. So, George, thanks for coming on. We wanted to start by covering talking a little bit about this. Um, our, our our newest cover with Stephen Yeun. Yeah. Well, I don't know. What were your initial thoughts when I first called you about working with Steven? And how did you kind of like? Uh, well,
0: I actually I didn't know who he was. And, you know, I'm particular about working with celebrities. I asked you to send me the movie so I could review it and I did and then I went away Um, and I got back to you the next day because I wanted to think about what I wanted to do with him. And I thought, you know, this is a Korean actor doing a film on, you know, migrating to America. You know, I thought, how do you do this? How do you, how do you package this guy? You know, how do you make him more than what he is in the film? How do you change him for for a cinematic version, our cinematic version of how you package a celebrity? And and I thought, well, it would be interesting to make him a cowboy since it's totally the polar opposite to what you would expect people to do him as. Um, But it has some sort of connection to to migration. So I thought of the West Mm -hmm. Um, and that's kind of how that happened. But it was very, Instinctual. It wasn't. um, It was just kind of a thought that occurred to me, and you liked the idea.
3: Yeah, it wasn't like any. It wasn't that literal. Just kind of like a feeling, right?
0: Yeah, it was more sort of like, how do you make this guy look like the men in the Magnificent Seven? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Which is, which is not what you would expect, but when you see Yul Brynner in the Magnificent Seven, you can't take your eyes off of it. You know, he's so handsome and stylish and extraordinarily more powerful because he doesn't belong in those clothes and yet he looks better than all of them in them. So it's kind
1: of, you know, it's the way I like to play. George, would you say that um, you're you're particular about working with celebrities? Could you say a little more about like how you make that decision and, and uh, why you feel that way?
0: I like to work with actors that, um, They have a talent, they also have a look, and they're, they are actually, I like to work with movie stars. And then I like to repackage them back to you. I'm not interested in working with like up and coming actors. Young, I don't care about youth. (laughs) I I like the idea of working with a movie star and then get selling them back to you in a way you never expect. I think that's what's interesting.
2: One of my favorite shoots that you've styled for us recently was uh not with an actor as with Christian McCaffrey, but you managed to make him look like a Hollywood leading man at the, uh, at the Chateau. Yeah, that was, um, that was another will call
0: that I had to, um, I had to go back and think about him. And, and I, thought, I thought, oh, he's a football player, but I don't want to shoot him like a football player. I want to shoot him like Paul Newman, <laughs> you know, and, um, or men of that ilk. I want him to look like that. Listen, I have this fascination with, with turning people into something you don't expect them to be, to be. And yet they fill the role perfectly. And then when you see it, you think, oh, wow, I wouldn't have thought of that. So I wanted it to be very American. I wanted it to be very cinematic. And I wanted him to look like a movie star instead of a football player. And I wanted him to be and a bit of, um, I, I don't want to say anything sexual because it has nothing to do with sexual. I wanted to bring the sensuality out of him and do sexy masculine images of him that would become classical or iconic in their time. Cause no one, cause no one shoots sports people like that. Like you see people shoot, you know, you see people shoot, you know, athletes and they always have a ball. Or something they're associated with. I think that's so fucking boring. It's like we know what he does. Give us the fantasy of what this person is. For me, it's all about the fantasy of the man. Or the woman. Instead of the reality of it. The reality doesn't interest me in any way, shape, or form. I I have no time for it. It's not. Like the reason I do this is because I get to go into a place that's fantasy. Like reality is a bore to me. We see it every day.
3: Yeah, we live it. Yeah, it's full we of don't want to see. It again. We want to
0: see, I want to be transported somewhere else.
3: One one incredible magic trick of that um, shoot with Christian McCaffrey, which was Melody McDaniel was the the photographer. Was the photograph of him in the in the pink robe with the uh, Gucci loafers on, having a coffee and reading the paper in the morning. And Christian McCaffrey doesn't particularly look like Paul Newman, but in that picture, he looked like Paul Newman. I
0: know. Well, that was the idea. Well, you know, it's really interesting. A friend of mine had taken a picture of me in that same place, in pajamas, having breakfast, smoking a cigarette. (laughs) And the angle that my friend Jordan took it at, when he showed me the picture, I was like, oh, well, that's that's kind of like an amazing way to shoot this whole thing this whole place like uh,
3: a little bit voyeuristic
0: super voyeuristic yeah. well the whole thing is voyeuristic yeah because i thought that would be interesting and i thought it would be interesting for a female photographer to do pictures of this guy that are really have a lot of overtones of sensuality but are not cl- classical sexy they're not sexy e- even when he's sitting in a butterfly chair, in underwear. It's not necessarily sexy. It's more matter of fact. You know, it's more journalistic than it is, than it is, oh, here's a really sexy, hot picture of this guy. But the interesting thing was when I called GQ and I said, listen, I need this guy suntanned by Jennifer Lopez's suntan person. And they were like, are you out of your mind? I said, no. I said, it's a deal breaker, I need him tanned. And I'm gonna have the spray tan person come over to his place and do it. They were like, George, that's never gonna happen. I said, well then, we're never gonna do it because if he's not tanned, it's not interesting. I need him to be sun-kissed and he's not, he's pale and pasty. So GQ was like, again, was like, oh my God, this guy's a fucking nightmare. Why do we work with him? I'm sure. (laughs) is the thought that was going through Victoria's head. And um, and he was fine with it. He was fine with everything.
3: You know, in, in the run-up to a shoot with George, there's an ultimatum every other day. It's like, look, either you're gonna send the spray tanner to his house or I'm not gonna do the fucking shoot. The choice is yours. All right, hold on a second. We'll ask, hold
1: on. The ultimatum, it's like having a really demanding rider <laughs> or something where it's <laughs> I'm gonna have these ultimatums and what it means is you're fully committed to me doing, executing the vision I need to execute here. It's like have some stakes.
0: When I see something in my, in my brain, I can't get away from it for better or for worse. And if I can't execute it in that way, then I'd rather not execute it because I don't think it's gonna be as good as the way I see it in my brain. Like if I don't see the picture before, I can't do it. I have to feel it. I mean, it's a a weird thing. It's not a cerebral thing. It's more of like an instinctual thing. I'm not a cerebral editor. I don't, I go with my, with my gut and what I feel more than what I think.
3: And that's sort of the key to Noah's question about which assignments you like to take too, right? Because you, you take a second to see if you can feel something or see something. Tell us a little bit about your experience with the photographer, Diana Marcosian, who was, it was your first time working with her and it was also our first time working with her at GQ.
0: Diana, Diana is amazing. Um, she's a fine art photographer. My agent actually, when we were looking for photographers to do this, there were all of these names that always come up uh, that I think are terrible. They're just not good. They're okay but they're very mediocre and I was looking for someone that, would, that could harness the landscape and could take this person and actually give them gravitas. And um, Diana is a really talented fine art photographer. She goes away and shoots in Mongolia for four months. She's the real deal, you know, and, I thought, and she's never done anything like this. So I thought, you know what? With with she has talent, she's young. And I think that we can work this out if we make it really cinematic. I think we'll be able to do this. And, you know, she took direction very well. She was a pleasure to work with. And I think she gave us some really, really surprising images. You know, that I, I wasn't ex- even expecting, you know, some of the images when I saw them, I was like, wow. I was expecting it to be good. I didn't think it would look like Edward Weston at times. Because we all, I mean, ultimately, well, we all want the same thing. We all want to see these people that make us forget about our day-to-day and transport us somewhere else.
3: Yeah, So take our breath away, please.
0: The difficulty is finding people with a modern vernacular that can do that and not just copy a photograph that was taken 20 years ago, you know, cause I think that is shallow, easy and boring.
1: <laughs> At what point do the clothes come into play? I mean, how do you, how does the, so there's this idea and image you want to, some feelings and then where, how does fashion become a part of that?
0: It depends, it depends on the, it depends on on, on the shoot, like, you know, for, for Brad Pitt, it was all Alain Delon and La Piscine. Do you know what I mean? And then there were pictures of like Paul Newman playing, Paul Newman playing ping pong. And there were a couple of images of Steve McQueen that came in there as well. But it, the whole shoot, the whole premise for the shoot, when I, when I knew we were gonna shoot Brad, I was like, we have to do Alain Delon and La Piscine. We need a pool. We need a house in LA that looks old school we need a garden, we need a couple of iron chairs, we need some cheslongs, like, and I knew that Lachlan could do the pictures. Do you know what I mean? Because I wanted them to have a misty sort of uh, grain to them, you know, and a very sort of um, Kodak, Comacron, 70s feeling, you know, and then make Brad look like we haven't seen him look before will you talk a little bit
3: because that shoot was that shoot was basically four colors will you talk a little bit about how that comes into play between the location the clothes and the set design well I mean the color comes
0: from the the color comes from the film from the cinematic reference like that's that's where I always that's where I always get the ideas for what the colors should be for uh, for a shoot, I always start with a film. Do you know? And, and I think that's what makes it interesting to bring it into photography. You know, and then to try and get those subtle, those subtle hues, I, I also feel like the colour of the film influences the colours that you're using for the clothes. You know, so it's the clothes on first. After everything is decided, then the clothes come in. I'm not the sort of editor that's obsessed by, you know, the latest fashion trend. I'm obsessed by style. And I think it lasts longer, conversely, than fashion. So, you know, we were doing, you know, pale pinks and we were doing pale pinks and yellow casts and blue casts and colors like that. So the clothes all reflected all of that.
3: Yeah, all sort of tying back to the color of the pool.
0: Well, exactly. It all goes back to La Piscine, which is what you get when you see the film, is the colors of the interiors and the colors of him by the pool. It's all, it was all decided. That decided what the, what that decided what the photography should also look like. We made it even more dreamy than, uh, because in the film, all those colors are there, but it's a little harder and crispier. We wanted to drain it more. So it looked like more of like a faded, like if you took an image of the film and then it faded over years, what it would look.
3: Like. Yeah. And you see that to the, like the color of the cushions are a part of that. And the, the towel that ended up over his head on the cover.
0: All of it. It's all very intentional. I mean, yeah. it's very hard for me to talk about what I do because it's so, it sounds like such bullshit, but um, I'm really trite. But I do... What I don't like is when something looks worked. I like it when no matter what it is, it feels completely plausible and natural. That's what I think is the most beautiful. You know, when something just, it's, it's, you capture a moment, you know, and I think it's hard to do that. And I think it's very, I think it's a subtlety that most people miss. And, and it's fine. Like, listen, I'm not, I'm, I'm the most underrated person in the business that I work in or one of them. And yet one of the ones that actually has produced images over the last 25 years that you look at and still look modern. So at the end, at the end, you know, it's always what I've wanted to do. And Peter Lindbergh taught me that. He was the first photographer I worked with. Also, how, how did he do that? I remember being on set with Peter the first time we worked together and we were doing a portrait of, of this girl. And I had done, you know, I had just come back from Paris from the shows And I did this styling trick with this thing around her neck and stuff. And Peter called me over and he said, he said, listen, you fucking cube. And he said, you know, that little thing you just did, that little thing you just did around the neck. He said, when you look at that picture in 20 years, you're going to fucking hate the fact you did that little fucking thing around the neck. (laughs) So take it the fuck off.
2: Speaking of styling tricks, I want to know. Um, one of my favorite images from the Brad Pitt shoot was the one where the shirt, his shirt tails are tied in a bow. Um, yeah. How did you How did you convince him to to let you do that? Uh, it's, I just was, did it.
0: Like, there was no convincing necessary.
2: How do you How do you, I guess how, how do you like establish that uh, like trust well, with a subject I like was that? I put him in
0: that shirt, which I thought the color was really beautiful. Then I tucked the shirt in, and I was like, that looks far too normal. And then I thought, I thought, ooh, let's tie it like a girl would tie that. You know what I mean? Like on a hot summer day in the south of France, how would a girl wear this? Do you know what I mean? And so I just did it instinctually, and he looked at it. He said, "Oh, well, that's cool." He's not stupid, Brad.
3: And then George was walking back behind Lachlan Bailey, the photographer, and George saw me going like, and he just and just like gave it the the Jordan shrug, like, "This is we're doing this now,"
2: and we did. You were- you were you were very cool with that, though. Well, he looked amazing. Speaking of George, um, what's the scene like these days at the chateau? It's been it's been several months since we uh, since we last checked in on the everyone's favorite hotel. You know, I've been
0: staying at my friend's house in Beechwood and going to the chateau and hanging out by the pool. It's all very chill. Um, they haven't opened yet, so it's very quiet. I'm on a film set now, working with a friend of mine that's a singer, Chase Cole. and Luca and Duke are, Luca and Duke are here. Giovanni Ribisi is filming it, who's amazing. You know, the actor, Mm -hmm. he's also a filmmaker. So he's doing this video for my friend Chase. So, you know, we have a very happy sort of like little Mm -hmm. LA world of all these kids, you know, which has been, which is really fun. And I'm getting to do all these projects and working with friends and stuff and doing stuff for just as favors to friends that's actually with really interesting people doing fun stuff that just keeps your hand in the game.
3: George, speaking of kids, uh, how did you get started when you were just a kid? Who were were your mentors? Before I even started doing
0: this, so there was a moment where um, there was an art director who was a big art director in the 70s and 80s in New York called uh, Richard Martino who worked for Saks and did all of those with Arthur Elgort, did all of those incredible, like, Saks Christmas spectacular. But he was a really, really good commercial art director. And he was a friend of mine. He was much older than I was. And um, at one point, I didn't really have a job. I was starting to style, but I really wasn't doing anything. And Richard always thought that I had great style. So Richard was like, listen, why don't you come to Miami? Let's go to Miami and shoot these catalogs for AMS, which was this terrible department store that was linked to Macy's. And we would go to Miami for three months at a time and just shoot catalogs. I didn't even know what I was doing. Like the idea of like going and finding all these clothes and then having, you know, it was a mess. I mean, I didn't even know how he trusted me. But, you know, I found an assistant and we would get all these clothes and then I'd go on Saturday night style them. And that was kind of the beginning. And then I started working with this young designer called John Bartlett out of his apartment. Um, and that was the first, and his shows in New York, when we started doing them were like, they just turned New York on its ear. You know, and we were all kids just kind of doing our thing. And then um, and then I met Peter Lindbergh on an advertising shoot more than 25 years ago, and Peter, Peter, we were at breakfast and he said, you know, he said, you know, you're fucking Cuban. He used to call me fucking Cuban. He said, you're really fucking talented. Have you ever worked for Italian Vogue? And I said, no, I said, you know, I mean, working for Italian Vogue at that time was like working for God. You know, it was, it was the ne plus ultra of style magazines. It was fashion. It was the template for fashion. It was, it was the reference for fashion was Italian Vogue, Um, and Peter called Franca, and he said, listen, and this is how it works then. Do you know what I mean? Peter called Franca and said, listen, I found this young stylist, I think he's really good. Then he came to breakfast the next morning, and said, Lucy, I spoke to Franca, we've got 40 pages in March, 40 pages in April, and 40 pages and a cover of Luomo Vogue for May. So you call Ariella Goji and you get to fucking work. And that was my first shoot. It was, on, it was like, that was the first anybody had heard about me in fashion. No one had heard about me. And all of a sudden I came out with 120 pages of editorial with Peter Lindbergh out of nowhere. The pictures are still good, by the way.
1: <laughs>
0: I bet. That's how it happened. That was, that, was that, that was it. That was like, that was my launch. And then since then, it's been a struggle of you know, heartbreak. <laughs> You know, it's been, you know, it's been everything they talk about. It's been, you know, it hasn't, it's not an easy road, you know, but it's been, it's been amazing. It's been heartbreaking. It's been inspiring. It's been, it's been incredibly crushing and disappointing. It's been all of it. It's been all of the emotions. You know, it's not, you don't become a star and everything is fabulous. Every day is a different day. Every day, there's something else to deal with. Like, you know, there are photographers that are amazing at what they do, that are world famous, that do a great project. And the next season, they're just taken off of it. And someone else arbitrarily is put on it. And you think these people are untouchable, Well, guess what they're not. None of us are untouchable because we're, we're at the whim of other people. So we're sort of like... We're prisoners of our own, we're prisoners of our own world.
3: Prisoners of your own freedom. It's the it's exactly what well, you pay for it,
0: right? Yeah. You, you do, you do, and you do, and I have paid for it because I decided a very long time ago that I didn't want to be, I did not want to be part of a gang. I wanted to be an anarchist, and so I wanted to be on my own and work and come in and work with everyone, you know, and you pay for that. You pay for that very dearly.
3: Yeah, it's trade-offs.
0: It's a trade-off, but then you have your freedom. And then no one, no one owns you, you know, but that freedom in this business, you pay for dearly because people want to crush people that are free.
3: George, will you tell us a little bit about, um, you have these new, speaking of like freedom and freelancing, you have these new projects, one with. John Marie Maj and one with Anderson and Shepard. And I was wondering if you would tell us a little bit about where those came from and how they kind of fit into the mix of what you do. You know, before
0: even before that, I was always known as like the best, you know, I was, you know, people always say that, no, you know, George has the best style. Do you know what I mean? And I didn't really know whether I did have the best style. I just knew that I liked what I liked. Do you know what I mean? And I stick to that to this day. Like, I just, I am who I am. Like, I like what I like. I like it my way. It's fine for you to do that. This is me, you know? And through that, um, people always said, you know, you should do clothes, you should do clothes, you should do this, you should do that. Everybody wants what you're wearing. I mean, so I thought, you know what? I'm gonna call Anderson and Shepard and I'm gonna see if we can start with pajamas. I've always done my own things like, and I did my own pajamas and I did my own stuff. But, you know, then someone said, why don't you do it for yourself? And actually, it took me a long time, to be honest, because I didn't want to do it for other people. I wanted to keep it for myself. I didn't want to sell it because I was like, I don't want anybody having my stuff. I want my stuff to be mine. But that's so stupid and narrow minded. So then I thought, you know what? Okay, let's do it but let's start slow and let's start with pajamas and let's start with my you know, leopard slippers that Stefano Pilati gave me 20 years ago. Well, I actually stole them after a Saint Laurent show, (laughs) after a Picasso collection that he did in Paris where they had all these leopard slippers. I went to the Saint Laurent showroom right after the show and I was like, I'm not leaving till I have four pairs because I'm going to wear these for the rest of my life. And I've worn them for 20 years. So I had Manolo Blahnik help me to find a slipper manufacturer to do the leopard slippers. Anderson and Shepard immediately said yes to the project. So I started working with my tailor there to cut the pajamas perfectly. And then the only missing link to the package that I needed was, you know, the omnipresent on my face always is who's going to make the sunglasses. Do you know what I mean? Because I've, I'm known for wearing sunglasses and I've worn many different, pairs of sunglasses, but Jacques-Marie Maj, I have to I I think is the best manufacturer of sunglasses in the world right now, to me. Like Dita was very good for a while, but their designer left. So there are very few people that actually make great lenses. So then, you know, after working with, 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 um, with Jacques-Marie Maj with Jerome and putting his lenses, on every famous person, major mega power, famous people and models. I was like, this is the guy to make my sunglasses. So I called him up and I said, listen, do you wanna do a collaboration? He said, are you kidding? I would love to. So I said, okay, we're gonna do a collaboration, but I wanna start with fucking up your classics. I wanna take the Dylan and the Jagger, but I wanna change them both. I wanna change them subtly, but I wanna change them. And I did both and they both sold out within 48 hours which is not bad not bad at all especially at 600
3: bucks a pop
0: and 800 bucks a pop so the jagger is 900 900, and the Dylan is 600 and they sold out in 48 hours and people are actually fighting over them which is crazy so that was pretty good actually my ego
3: (laughs) So, George, speaking of putting Jacques-Marie Maj glasses on uh, famous people, tell us a little bit about the, uh, our infamous Keanu Reeves cover.
0: Well, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm an anarchist, Will. People say, oh, you can't put sunglasses on covers. You need eye contact. You need this. You need that. I was like, what are you talking about? What world do you live in? Mm-hmm. What fantasies? were squashed at such an early age that you've made these arbitrary rules that eye contact is everything, an image is everything. When you look at the opening of Equus and it's Richard Burton giving a soliloquy, smoking a cigarette, working heavy frames, wearing heavy frames, like you never forget that soliloquy. Like it's, he's smoking, he's wearing glasses, but it's Richard Burton and you cannot forget him. Like, I'm sorry. Glasses are memorable. You don't need to see people's eyes. You need to feel the person. You need to feel the power of the person, whether it's in sunglasses or without, it doesn't matter. But the image needs to be powerful. The face needs to be powerful. So anytime you go into any cliche of something that you're not supposed to do, I immediately wanna do the thing that you're not supposed to do because I know that it's gonna work and it's gonna be fresh and and it was a great cover and it was our first one and you were like yeah we're going to do this it's a Savile suit, it's a pair of sunglasses and it's Keanu Reeves and there are no credits but we're going to do it because it's amazing and he looks like what I wanted him to look like which was a gangster he looked like one of the Crazes.
3: he looks like a hitman on the
0: move about to off exactly like the craze yeah. that, was my, that was my whole thing but it's a really elegant sort of gangster you know where everything which I love like I think I always think there's something no matter what it is whether no matter like hetty does this very well like no matter what the no matter what you're trying to say no matter what the look you're going for is there should always be no matter what it is no matter whether it's rough whether it's fine what what whatever it is it should always be refined me even if it's punk rock there's a finesse to punk rock that's necessary for you to believe that it's real you know it's 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 an articulation of the style you know even if it's dirty it needs to be right you need to feel it and it needs to be correct because otherwise
2: if it's dirty and it's average it's just dirty (laughs) who cares
0: about
3: that
2: this is excellent um, excellent personal style advice for the post-pandemic Roaring Twenties that we're about to experience. Everything yes. must be refined.
0: Gray is a very sad color. It's only good in a suit or in a really good old sweatshirt, but you can't live your life wrapped in a gray blanket. It's, I mean, one must always try and achieve some modicum of being crisp.
1: Somehow,
3: <laughs> I think. Rachel, I'm I'm dying for a Rachel question here. I'm dying.
1: Oh, okay, George. I'm wondering what your favorite, some of your favorite movies are, and your favorite directors. Oh,
0: uh, favorite directors: Visconti, Pasolini, Antonioni, Godard. A couple of things. The French. I was never really so much into the French. The Italian cinema of the '60s. Completely, like, completely blew me away, um, Polanski, for sure, Polanski, of that generation, Polanski. Uh, today, I would, ha- I would be hard pressed. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I think you have, you know, Terrence Malick, you know, who's an incredible director. I think you know, also, I mean listen, can we talk about Kubrick, you know, from like Barry Lyndon to like Clockwork Orange to like everything that he accomplished space on, I mean, all of it, like they're all of these directors I love. But right. I also like them oh, because yeah. they were able to be, to do such different things. Like, especially like the American cinema of the 70s that was destroyed right. by we Barry Diller and all the TV people when they came into Paramount and they sort of like took away all of the style and all of the thing and brought up the blockbuster was the beginning of the end of cinema in, in America. Do you know what I mean? Like that was, they killed. They actually killed it because they didn't understand it. So all of the people that were working in it were sort of like cast aside and all these horrid, average, dreadful TV people came in as executives and threw everybody else out. And then it was all about the blockbuster. It was no longer about the film that was made and crafted with like friends that were hanging out, they were all hanging out. The directors were hanging out. The producers were hanging out. The actors were hanging out. They were all friends. So when you look at all of these movies, of course they're good. Of course they're, re- they're resonant because they were crafted with a love of cinema. Do you know what I mean? Now things are crafted with a bottom line. Do you know what I mean? And it's, and it, and it's a very different product. I mean, it's not good or bad. It's just different. So when you look at Rocco and his brothers, right, and you, look, and you look at Rocco and his brothers, which is 50 or 60 years old, maybe 55 years old, you can't take your eyes off the screen. When you look at The Damned, the beginning of The Damned is a dinner party given for this scion of this regal German family. And his grandson is gay and a pervert and a Nazi. And so for his grandfather, who was very straight and very stoic, his birthday present to him is basically a semi-drag performance that he does in feathers, leather, and a cap in front of the entire family. Like that was made in 1965, in 1970. Like, or you go to a film like Teorema, do you know what I mean? Where Terrence Stamp comes into this bourgeois family and sleeps with the mother, the father, the daughter, and the brother. <laughs> but they're dressed in capucci by Alberto Tosi who was one of the greatest costume designers of that era you know so there's even though all of that is going on there's even more subterfuge because it's so elegant because the colors are so beautiful because everyone is so exquisite they're all so beautiful like and yet this disastrous thing is happening their whole their whole family system is breaking apart through this one pervert that comes in and makes them all fall in love with him. So, I mean, it's, it's interesting, you know, what cinema does, the, 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 the way it's treated. I mean, I'm, I'm a great lover of films, Will, you know that. Like it's, like for me, films and, and literature are my thing. That's what makes me, that's what makes me dream. You know, and music, of course. But more than art, more than anything, I have to say it's films and, 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 and pictures, of course, and music. Um, I mean, art's fine, you know, I like, I love art, you know, but if I have to say, like, what's, you know, what do you want? I said, I want a Zuberan or Velazquez or a Goya. Do you know what I mean? I don't want, you know, some East LA artist hanging on my wall. Do you know what I mean? I'd rather go to the Prado and spend the weekend at the Ritz, and go and visit my favorite paintings, you know, and leave with that. like.
1: Yeah, I gotta, I gotta important, I'm gonna follow the highbrow art talk with the super important question. Let's get the fitness routine, George. I gotta know uh, what's the daily fitness routine, what's in the diet, and um, because obviously that's an important part of the image, along with the robe and the sunglasses and the leopard slippers.
0: Well, if you wanna wear clothes, you need to be fit.
1: But the routine's pretty easy,
0: actually, I mean, I train with a hard ass, he goes between being a sadist and a masochist depending on the day, Um, and I do the same. So I have a very rough workout routine. I work out for an hour and 20 minutes, four days a week. And uh, the diet is 80-20. It's 80 very, very healthy and 20% whatever I want. And I've been doing it since I was 11.
3: (laughs) And no booze.
0: Oh, yeah, and there's that. I don't drink or do drugs. <laughs> I do smoke cigarettes though. So we've heard. Can I have one of those?
3: Absolutely.
0: Look, I'm gonna smoke a cigarette in everything. Will.
3: <laughs> I'm shocked, I'm truly shocked.
1: This is the first time someone smoked a cigarette on our podcast. Oh,
3: I'm sure,
0: well, darling, I'll be the first. You'll never interview anyone like me. <laughs> <laughs> so is that your only question you had for me was about film and directors?
1: Well, I'm also curious, when was the first time that you went to Anderson and Shepherd? Like, when did that obsession begin?
0: Well, my grandfather and father had all of their clothes made by tailors their entire lives. I was quite taken by my grandfather's elegance and my father's elegance as well, actually. Um, And it's always something that I liked. I mean, I tore it up, I rebelled against it, I did it, I didn't do it. You know, I wore leather exclusively for a long time in new york i wore nothing but leather trousers or chaps to go out harnesses leather caps kilts motorcycle boots like i did all of that but my friends didn't know who was going to show up because i remember going to my friend robbie brown's birthday at the union club in new york and it was black tie naturally and it was a a refractory table with 30 men at it and i arrived in leather from head to toe at the Union Club in New York in 1984, and they had to let me in because Ravi's family is one of the founding members. And I felt just as elegant as the men that were sitting next to me in black tie. The problem with my friends were, they didn't know when I was gonna show up wearing a suit, when I was gonna show up half naked, when I was gonna show up in leather. I was like, whatever I decided I wore. I never had had an issue with it, you know? My doormen were especially suspect of me because they'd see me leaving and like, you know, when I worked for Ralph, that was a, that was a really funny thing when I worked for Ralph. So I went, I went to work for Ralph at the store when I was a kid and my first meeting with Charles Fagan, who was the managing director of the store, and he said, oh, we have your clothes set up in the gentleman's clothing room. And I was like, okay. So I went to the meeting with Charles to see what clothes they had picked out for me and i was like and i thought to myself oh this is not gonna go well so i walked into the gentleman's clothing room and they're a jawed person hacking jackets and tattersall shirts and like you know three-piece brown you know brown houndstooth suits with like and i was like i'm sorry charles these are all country clothes i'm not wearing country clothes in the city i said i will wear a gray double-breasted suit with a white shirt and a silver tie every day, and I will wear pink flannels, a navy blazer, a white shirt, and a silver and navy rep tie on weekends with blue socks and alligator loafers. That's what I'm wearing, and that is a deal breaker, and that is a true story, and that is what I wore at Ralph Lauren.
3: George Cortina ultimatum started early. Take me or leave me. I ain't wearing country clothes in the city. Get it, George. We love you dearly. Thank you so much for coming on Corporate Lunch. We could really go all afternoon and into the evening and through the night, and I think we should do that uh, with the recording off. Um, but we've got to call. It, we've got to call it for now. That's all they can take. That's all they can take.
0: It was really fun, actually. It was really easy and really fun.
3: Thanks, Joe. Um, cool. Give the boys our love. Have fun, and uh, we'll, I will. We'll see you very soon.
0: All right. Bye guys. Thanks you for your time. Bye, Julie. Right.
1: Thank you.